Good morning, Redemption Church family. Pastor Matt here. Thanks for gathering with me in your homes. Uh, needless to say, it has been quite the unique week for us uh, as a city and for a country and really as the world with international flights being canceled to Colorado declaring a state of emergency to the federal government doing the same. Uh, I don't know if you've been out and about at the grocery stores uh, observing all of the empty shelves and uh, people just stockpiling everything, but uh, you would you would think that the world is coming to an end by the way some people are acting. And I think it's really important for us as a church that when it, it seems like the world around us is getting out of control, that we take a step back and we ask ourselves the most important question, and that is this, is that who ultimately is in charge? Who's in charge? Who's in control of all this? And I think for any of us, if we believe that we're the ones in control or we have the power to contain a virus, we are going to be gravely mistaken and disappointed. And it's important for us this morning to acknowledge that the same God who knows the number of hairs on our head is the same God who is not caught off guard by the troubles and tragedies that we experience in this fallen world. Our God is good, he is present, and he has purposes in all things, even if we do not understand completely. And as we started this series through the Gospel of Luke, I just want to remind us that our goal from the beginning was that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would look to him to know who he is and allow him to transform us as we see him for who he really is. And whenever humanity faces uncharted waters like we are today, it's, it's easy for us to get caught up in the commotion. But as Christians, we need to be reminded and we need to remind ourselves that Christ is the anchor in the storm. He is the sovereign God over all of creation. And for us as believers, our security is not in our health. Our security is not in the stock market or our 401k or the stockpile of food and water that we have in our basements, our security is in Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, who has the power over all things, and the one who has already taken care of the biggest problem humanity has, which is our sin and death. And so this morning, our main idea is we look to the gospel of Luke to be instructed and again to turn our gaze towards Jesus is this, is that when we are seeing Jesus rightly, we will acknowledge his authority over all things. So I want to encourage you, if you're in your living room, at the kitchen table, in your office, wherever you are right now, grab your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 20. If you need to pause this and go grab your Bible, do it. I want you to follow along with me. But grab your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 20, and we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus together. So, verse 1 says this, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or what is it that, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? 
But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, so here we see Jesus in the last week, in the middle of the last week of his earthly life and ministry, and he's in the temple, the, the epicenter of Israel, and uh, he is teaching and preaching the gospel. The word gospel is the good news, and he's preaching the good news that salvation can be found through faith in him. He's declaring the way of the kingdom of God and eternal life. And while he's preaching, he's approached by these religious leaders who ask him this question, verse 2, by what authority? do you do these things? Who, who gave you this authority? Now, it's important for us to realize that at this point in time, everyone knew that Jesus had healed the sick, he'd raised the dead, he'd done many, many miraculous signs and wonders, but now he is teaching with authority in the temple. And the crowds who are there are clinging to every word he is saying. They're acknowledging they believe that this Jesus has true spiritual authority. And these religious leaders are really trying to discredit Jesus because he is a threat to their spiritual influence and authority over the people. People are no longer looking to them for spiritual insight. They are now looking to Jesus. And as they're attempting to question Jesus, Jesus very simply turns the tables on them by asking a basic spiritual question. He says in verse 4, Hey, John's baptism... Was that from heaven or was it from man? In other words, was John's ministry from God or was it just a man-made ministry? It's important for us to know that John the Baptist uh, was perceived by all of Israel at that time to be a prophet from God. And they had gone out and he preached in the wilderness and they would go out to hear his preaching and his teaching and he would charge them to be baptized, to repent, to confess their sin. And so... While the whole nation has believed that John is this prophet from God, the religious leaders have refused to acknowledge the validity of John's ministry. So here we see those in the highest position of spiritual authority are being unable to, or have been unable to discern where the ministry of this man, John, came from. And if they can't answer a question like this, their own spiritual authority is in risk of being completely discredited, which is what Jesus does through this question. So they discuss this amongst themselves. How are we going to answer Jesus? And we see they're in this catch-22 because they don't want to be hypocrites, but they also don't want to be hated by the people. And so they cop out. They answer Jesus by saying, we don't know. And Jesus says, all right, well, then I'm not telling you by what authority I do these things. One simple question, and Jesus silences the religious leaders of the day and discredits their spiritual authority. And if we take a step back and think about this, and we think about who Jesus is and the authority that he has, are we prone to question his authority like these religious leaders? Do you believe in your heart, in your mind, that Jesus is the ultimate and the only authority on all spiritual matters? Just a few days after this event, Jesus would be in the upper room celebrating the Last Supper with his spiritual, or with his disciples, and this is what he declared about himself in John 14, 6. He said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making an exclusive, authoritative statement that spiritual life, the way of spiritual truth, is only found in him. This is true now, just as it was true then. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. He is the spiritual authority over all things. Let's keep reading. Verse 9 says, And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. All right, so as a way of rebuking those who think they have spiritual authority, Jesus tells this parable. And in the parable, the man is representative, is God. The vineyard is a picture of Israel, God's chosen people in God's place. The tenants are the religious leaders who were supposed to be stewarding everything that God had given to them. The servants that were sent are the prophets, those who came declaring the truth in the word of God. And lastly, the beloved son is Jesus. And so here we see the the big picture story that God planted this vineyard. He called the people to himself and he gave them stewardship over his word to honor him in all things. And as the people of God went throughout the ages, some of them, some seasons, they went wayward. But God would send them representatives or prophets to, to teach them the way of truth and to realign their hearts to the ways of God. But they mistreated the prophets. They rejected their words. They, bent, they beat them and they sent them away. So God finally sent his son, thinking that perhaps they would respect him. And yet they throw him out and kill him. And we see verse 16, so what is the owner to do? He will come and destroy the unfaithful tenants and give the vineyard to others. Remember last week we talked about how Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, around 40 years after Jesus was rejected and crucified at the hands of those who should have gladly received him. 
And after telling this parable, we see Jesus quote from the Old Testament. We see him quote from Psalm 118. If you have time, I'd encourage you to go back and read that whole psalm. It's great. But he, he picks out this verse and he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Psalm 118, it's a psalm of praise to God for his goodness, his love, and his salvation. And Jesus is quoting it to the religious leaders as an indictment because he is saying, you are actually these builders. You are the ones who have rejected me, the cornerstone, even though I came to make the way of salvation and I am the only hope for all humanity. And for us today, it's important for us to to take a step back and to acknowledge and accept that Jesus is the only Son of God and the only source of salvation. And we will either be we will either fall on this stone and be broken, or the stone will fall on us and be crushed. But the other alternative is we will receive him as the cornerstone. We will accept that he is the foundation of life and the source of salvation. And my question for everyone this morning for self-examination again is, have you acknowledged Jesus' authority over your salvation? Many people, like the religious leaders, want control and power over their own life and destiny. And yet Jesus is the only one who can save the sinner's soul. And it would be foolish of anyone to reject Jesus as the cornerstone because he is God's gift of love and gift of salvation to a wayward people. On the flip side, we would be wise to build our entire lives upon the cornerstone because he holds all things together and he alone is the true path to eternal life. Jesus is the authority over our salvation. Let's keep reading. Verse 20 says, So they, the religious leaders, watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he, Jesus, perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So now the religious leaders are getting desperate. They're they're trying to, to get at Jesus from any angle they possibly can. And they're setting trap after trap in attempt to catch him in his word. And so far they couldn't trap him on the basis of his spiritual authority. So they're thinking, okay, let's try to catch him on the basis of earthly authority and see if we can get the, the ruling government to condemn him. And so they ask him this question about taxes. I don't know about you, but taxes in light of the coronavirus is probably like the second thing on your mind. Uh, But April 15th is coming, and that's tax day. And many of us might be tempted to ask this similar question. Is it really lawful for me to pay taxes? 
Is this really what God would want me to do? Well, let's see what Jesus says. Verse 21, we see the spies who are sent by the religious leaders. They come with this false flattery and pretense. Oh, teacher, we know that you speak rightly and and speak the way of God. So tell us, good teacher, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, something we need to realize is that the context here of the way they paid taxes is very different than it is for us today. Rome was the world powerhouse, and the Jews hated the fact that they were under Roman rule. They weren't just paying taxes to a government to which they were citizens of. They were paying taxes to a foreign power who had conquered their country. They despised Rome and they wanted to get rid of them. And this is a brilliant trap that they're trying to catch Jesus in because it's a deeply emotional issue for all the people. It's not just about money. It's also about power and who is in control over them. But we see that Jesus, knowing their heart, asks for a Roman coin, which had become the common uh, currency for buying and trading at the time. And he says to them very simply, whose inscription or whose image is on this coin? And they say, it's Caesar's. And so Jesus says, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God the things that belong to God. And with one simple sentence, Jesus tells them that there is a way they can both honor Caesar and honor God. He's saying the money you use to buy and trade and, and to, to find your livelihood, that, that's from Caesar. So pay your taxes. But you also need to give to God the things that belong to God, like your heart, your devotion, and your worship. Those things alone belong to God, and Caesar can never take those things away from you. And again, verse 36 tells us that with, with this answer, Jesus silenced them once again, leaving them without anything left to say. And a question I'd have for us this morning is, is, are you one who quickly challenges earthly authority? Do you find yourself complaining about government officials often or complaining about having to pay your taxes reveals a temporal mindset and maybe one that is far too set on the things of this world. We're instructed in Romans 13.1 that says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Do you know what that means? It means that every government and every kingdom across the entire planet is under the rule of God. And our calling as Christians, which we're instructed in 1 Timothy 2, is to pray for those in positions of leadership, not to complain about them. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. World leaders need the prayers of God's people on an ongoing basis, and especially in times like this of global crisis. But let us remember, as we go to God in prayer... We're acknowledging that this world is not our home. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says this, 
If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So pay your taxes. Pray for world leaders. Keep your mind focused on eternal things and worship the one true God. And I was thinking about this, just how crazy it is that we live in a country right now that has declared today to be a national day of prayer. That government leaders have said, go to God in prayer. We need help. How awesome is that? How rare is that, that we live in a day and age and under a government system that would encourage the people of the nation to do such a thing? And if you've received our our church email from yesterday, we included in that a prayer guide. Uh, A prayer guide that we'd encourage you to, to personally go through today, go through with your family, perhaps with your small group. But it's just a way of us acknowledging who God is, that He is in control, and submitting ourselves under Him in prayerful dependence. Let's keep going. Let's see the last trap that the religious leaders set for Jesus. This time it's a theological trap, a, a, a trap of biblical debate, starting in verse 27. It says, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. After the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but God of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared ask him any question. All right, so we, we start by seeing the, the Sadducees. They're kind of the aristocrats. They're the old money and the old power in the neighborhood. But they're also the naturalists. These are those who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, as verse 27 said. And they also deny angels or really anything that is supernatural. And so we see the hypocrisy right off the bat in their questioning of Jesus because they don't even believe in what they're questioning him about. But they go into this hypothetical scenario and attempt to go toe-to-toe with Jesus on a biblical basis of biblical authority and, and to stir this theological debate. And so they quote from Moses and they quote this law that is known as the kinsman redeemer law where if a man died and left a wife without children that uh, the closest in kin would take her and marry her. 
Now, this might sound a little weird to us in this day and age, but back in the day, it was for the protection and for the provision of women in the culture. This was an incredibly loving thing to do so that the land wouldn't be left with a ton of widows on their own needing to provide for themselves. So they put this hypothetical scenario in front of Jesus, about seven brothers, and each one marries this woman and then dies without uh, her bearing them any children. And we see uh, that this, this poor woman not only has to endure having seven different husbands, but she has to bury every single one of them. I mean, I feel bad for the woman just hearing this story. But this hypothetical situation, again, they're, they're trying to trap Jesus. And the question they pose now is, well, whose wife is she going to be? All of them married her on earth. So whose wife is this going to be in the resurrection? Which Jesus answers in verse 34. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Jesus is teaching here that marriage is for this life only. It's a temporal covenant while on this earth that is a reflection of God and Christ and his church. But in the afterlife, people will not marry or be given in marriage, but will become eternal beings like the angels and death will be no more. And Jesus goes on to silence them once again and reveal their biblical ignorance. In verse 37, he says, But that dead, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. So again, they're, they're trying to use the law of Moses to trap Jesus, and now Jesus is using the story of, of Moses' calling to prove that God is not the God of the dead, but God of the living. God revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses miraculously by saying, I am. When Moses said, who shall I tell the people that, that you sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, he didn't say I was the God of Abraham. He said, I am the God of Abraham. Abraham is still alive. And Jesus makes this point very clear. That there is life after death and there will be a resurrection where we will all stand before God. And at this point, with nothing left to debate on this theological matter, a few of the scribes acknowledge it by saying, well said, teacher. And I love how this chunk ends. It says, and they dared not ask him any more questions. Jesus has silenced them yet again. I wanted to bring our attention to one portion of that passage that caught my eye, and and that is that Jesus says that uh, those who are considered worthy will attain this resurrected life. Who are those considered worthy? It is only those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. Those who don't trust their own good deeds or their best moral efforts, but those who look to the perfect one, 
who died in their place for their sin and trust in his power to forgive and to save. Jesus himself said in John 6, 29, that this is the work of God to believe in the one he has sent. Everything about the Christian life flows from faith in Jesus Christ. That is the starting point. That is the way of salvation. And everything beyond that is because of that. And my question for us this morning and and for those tuning in right now is, do you ever challenge or question the Bible's authority? The 66 books of the Bible, the canon of Scripture, are God's authoritative word to the world. They are the only books of divine origin inspired by God's Holy Spirit, handed down to the church, eternal and sufficient in all matters pertaining to life and eternity. But many people today, just like back then, go into theological debates and speculations about the Bible in an attempt to sidestep having to come underneath its authority. But Jesus himself is the eternal word of God to whom all men will give an account. I love how the Gospel of John opens, but says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And down in verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Meaning that uh, in Jesus's incarnation, he was the word of God put on flesh. Everything Jesus said is God's words. And everything penned in the scripture is the word of God. And here we see Jesus time and time again has silenced these puppet religious leaders on the matters of spiritual authority, on the matters of civil authority, and on the matter of biblical authority. And at this point in time, the religious leaders have no other authority by which they can challenge him, and so they shut their mouths. Jesus goes on, the last few verses we'll talk about this morning, to establish his eternal authority. Verse 41. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? It's important for us to know that throughout Scripture, God predicted who the Messiah would be and the details surrounding the Messiah who was to come, his life and and lineage through which he would come. And King David um, was one through whom was promised that, that his descendant would sit on the eternal throne. And in this psalm, David is acknowledging that his descendant, though by lineage would be his son, this son would actually be Lord over him. The coming king would be the eternal king, the king and lord over David himself. And here is Jesus establishing his authority as this one, as the true king over all of Israel, both past, present, and future. Jesus' authority transcends all time and is eternal. And Jesus made this clear to his disciples in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, when he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's all authority. Jesus is over it all. 
And as we saw in our text today, it started with these religious leaders questioning Jesus' authority. And the passage ends with Jesus declaring his authority. He is Lord over Israel. He is Lord over all of this world. He is Lord over heaven and earth. And church family, for us today, if we are seeing Jesus rightly, we will acknowledge his authority over all things, which means that he's in control. It means we don't have to freak out when the world seems to be going crazy. His control and his sovereignty should bring our minds and our hearts to a place of peace and should bring us incredible comfort, no matter how things pan out in this world. And I love the promise of Jesus also at the end of the Great Commission because it takes what is true of him in an eternal authoritative sense and it personalizes it for every single one of us who are followers of Jesus today. Jesus promises his followers in verse 20 of Matthew 28. He says, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always. I'll never leave you. I am with you in the midst of everything. And in the midst of these uncertain times, we must remember that Jesus is that authority. He's in control. But we also need to remember that he is with us. We don't know what the death toll is going to be due to the coronavirus. We don't know when the crazy is going to come to an end. But we do know the one who is in charge. We do know the one who has a plan and a purpose behind everything that happens in this world. And as the church, as we are scattered all throughout our city today, I just want to urge us and challenge us to press on in what God has told us in his word. To love one another. To seek to serve and lay down our lives for one another. To shine the light of Jesus to those around us. And to remember that Jesus is with you. Jesus is in control. And we can trust in him. And we wanted to take a moment now to invite the rest of the pastors of redemption up. And and we're just going to spend some time just sharing with you some of the things that God has placed upon our hearts as we uh, have personally navigated through what's happening around us, uh, but also just what God's been doing in us. So guys, if you want to come on up and uh, let's, let's share with the body what the Lord's teaching us. I'm going to have Jason start us off. So my first question for you guys is how many of you have watched Outbreak? On Netflix, be honest. One, okay. I tried to watch it last night, and Wendy vetoed that quickly. We wound up watching a comedy special instead. Um, but it was pretty interesting because uh, as I was thinking about that and this whole coronavirus, COVID, outbreak, pandemic, state of emergency, I started to think how a lot of times we can take our cues from entertainment we can take our cues from the media. And what I so appreciate, bro, from today and just from uh, our our walk with Jesus, that our our cues, our response, our our hope uh, is ultimately going to be fueled 
by Christ and not by anything else. And I think when things like this happen, uh, it can be a little bit of a litmus test of what comes out. Does what come out comes out? Uh, is it something that is from a movie, or is it something that comes out from what you saw on Facebook or what you saw on the news? And does that hysteria and that um, that panic response um, come out because of what you're putting in front of you? And I just encouragement that I would have for us is how much time are we spending with the Lord? How much time are we surrendering fears and and asking for, for his wisdom and his direction? I think that's a uh, one of the encouragements that I would that I would have for us. Yeah, stay up to date. Um, take uh, take the the information dates as they're coming because it's changing every hour or every day. Uh, we want to stay apprised with what's going on, but at the same time is that what's then dictating your actions? And your words and your response, like um, Wendy does the shopping at our house. I don't, I don't buy toilet paper, but I've had this urge, like I need to go out and buy toilet paper. <laughs> I, I, why would I? Why would I think that? And the reason why is because everybody else is doing that, and that's what we see on the news is that you can't find it even at Staples. Like you can't find toilet paper anywhere. And um, and I just think, test yourself. Kind of take inventory and say, what is my response right now? What's coming out of my mouth? What are my actions? What are what is my response to, to this and and if it is one of um, kind of following with and, and getting carried up by the, the 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 waves of emotion and pushed to and fro and not just you know we have this peace we have this solid ground we have Christ we can we can put our hope and our trust in Him regardless of what's going on around us that would be one of my encouragements. Um, interestingly, my, my thoughts turn towards even thinking about opportunities. And um, I think about how the gospel interacts and intersects actually with this crisis and thinking about that. And as I was kind of sitting, um, listening to you, Matt, this morning and thinking about the perspective, again, that we have that uh, even, Jason, you've alluded to, I took a look, you know, I kind of looked at the map. And I don't know how many people have looked at a world map like this and they see little, these little circles right? You've seen those? And they represent kind of an outbreak, right? And I thought, how about if we actually look at those maps and think about the infectious nature of the gospel and actually said those outbreaks are places where, you know, the infectious nature of God's people would be permeating those type of discussions and conversations. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, one of the things that's kind of struck me is that what has God up to? And we can ask all kinds of questions about suffering the world. Uh, but I do know that uh, so oftentimes God uses these things to as a wake-up call. And that's a, it's a wake-up call, I think, for the body of Christ, but also prayerfully that it would be a wake-up call for the people that we love dearly who do not know the Lord. And how, just, let me just read to you from Psalm chapter 39. It says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And my, I know for me, one of my prayers is that, that God would teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom, because the name, number of our days are numbered, and God knows that number. And sometimes we just need one of these kind of wake-up calls to realize that, again, as you talked about the temporal nature and the eternal nature, and we're called to live for eternity and to call other people to consider eternity, which brings us right back to the gospel. 
and the hope that we might have in Christ and nothing else. And that we're made um, to be with him, but this world is broken because of the consequence of sin. And that's why Christ came, to restore all things. And that our hope is in him and what he's done. And to challenge people to consider eternity in light of that. Um, <clears throat> it's It's been interesting. I feel like my heart has been kind of all over the place this week. Uh, maybe myself watch outbreak. Um, but this morning as I was uh, just spending some time in the Word and just praying, uh, I was really struck by how frustrating it must be to be the enemy of our God and King. That consistently we see that what the enemy means for evil, God redeems and uses for good. And how time and time and time again, when stuff like this, the uncertainty and the the house of cards that really is our economy and everything starts to crumble, God and his people just shine so brightly. Um, And so I found myself often this week just and being reminded of the the end of uh, Genesis and Joseph's story where, you know, he's standing in front of his brothers and he has this opportunity to say, you know, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And look at how all these people are alive because of your evil and wicked intentions and how um, how that is the opportunity that's in front of us right now is is to put God God and his mission and his goodness on display and walk not in fear, but full of faith and believing that um, no matter like God is good, like end end of the sentence, like not if we get through this or how we get through this or if we get sick, like God is. Um, and so it's just been, um, it's almost been exciting for me, um, and to think, man, this is our chance as a church to shine brightly in the city of Loveland to get into our neighborhoods. And, you know, for those of us who are feeling healthy, we can meet our neighbors because we all find ourselves with some free time. We find ourselves with, you know, some semi-decent weather and how could we be missional right where we're at as people are scared. Like we have a hope that isn't in toilet paper. Like, um, and so, um, it's just, it's, it's such an awesome opportunity and just to believe that, man, what's meant for evil, God's absolutely going to use for good. So. Yeah, and on the heels of that, I was just thinking about um, as a church and pastorally, we want to make ourselves available that if there are tangible needs um, that you would let us know about that. We want ways to practically serve our city uh, because, again, we are living for eternity. We're not living uh, for this world. And so we just want to continue to to seek to um, to be servants and to lay our lives down and, and to do all that we can as a church to to bless and come alongside our church family, but also again those in our city who need our help. And so we're we're just keeping eyes and ears open for opportunities to do that. We want to encourage you to do the same. Um, but uh, Jason has really had a unique uh, angle at this thing, being in the medical world. He's kind of had a front row seat at how this pandemic is impacting Loveland already. And so he's going to kind of give us a little bit of a, a public safety announcement and then also just uh, close us down with, with a word of prayer. So, Jay, you want to share with yeah, us? Yeah, thanks, bro. Uh, it's been really interesting to see this unfold. God's word is so important. We don't want to let it drop on the floor. Uh, uh, it has been really interesting to see how this has unfolded over the last uh, couple of weeks, and 
the the recommendations, how they've changed um, hour by hour, and and the amount of um, meetings and and just how we've had to to adapt and change workflows, and and just to give you a little bit of insight, like for example, on Friday we we went to um, really uh, a state of uh, emergency in that we're screening everybody that comes into the clinic, and and so when those broadcasts go out saying you know this is a state of emergency or we need to we need to to really um, change the way we're doing things. It affects clinics and hospitals, I think, um, the most. And and so everybody that comes into the clinic is getting asked questions and getting screened, healthy, unhealthy. And and we tested seven people um, on Friday. We won't have those results until uh, until Monday. And so I just share that with you, um, not to, uh, again, in any way incite fear, but really to just um, to share, you know, this is something that, that – is going to continue to unfold, and it's something that that I would just encourage people to um, to really before you make a decision, before you say, "Oh, like I need to go and get tested," the supplies are really limited. Um, I've been talking with friends that work in urgent care. Uh, some urgent cares have run out of flu tests over um, this weekend, so it's one of those things where there isn't a treatment for um, COVID nineteen. Uh, Right now, what we're doing for people that are coming in that are symptomatic is is advising them to stay home, advising them to um, self-quarantine, uh, to take Tylenol, to take ibuprofen, all supportive measures because we don't have anything as far as a magic bullet to, to give, and even the testing is, is very limited. So what I would say is if you're sick um, and able to take some supportive measures and, and feel well and, and feel better, um, then the best thing is to stay at home. If you're at the point where uh, things are not going well and, and you're really worried about your health, um, then I would advise you to and, and, and to get screened, to get tested. But at the same time, um, also rec- recognizing that there's a lot of this hysteria, there's a lot of people that are going in that don't need to. And so um, really just trying to decide, is it something that I need to, need to go in for or not? Oftentimes calling beforehand and, and talking through symptoms can really be helpful too to get some direction. So uh, that's my recommendation uh, from a medical perspective. And the, uh, the one thing that did come to mind this week as I was thinking about all of this is we did a series that's got to be two and a half, three years ago on facing fear with faith. And we talked about uh, these different types of fears that that are really common. And, and the one that really stood out to me this week is the fear of the future and the unknowns. And the, the, the aspect of God's character that we talked about with respect to fighting that particular fear is God's greatness and how God is in control. And uh, you may feel like that fear of, of the future in this in this time, and and feel like, gosh, I need to try and control these 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 different uh, circumstances, or try and control uh, my surroundings. And and my one encouragement uh, with respect to uh, that specific fear is, we can fight that by remem- remembering how great God is and how He is in control, and we can uh, surrender this and all things to Him. So I want to pray. For that, um, for each of us, and uh, and for our city, and thank you guys for being with us uh, here today. As soon as we get information, as soon as we have um, uh, more updates on events or services, we'll be sure and pass those along to you. But let's spend some time praying. 
God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that uh, your word is unhindered. And God, that uh, we are reminded in your word that um, the gates not prevail against your kingdom and against uh, its advancement. And so we know uh, the victory is ours. We know uh, the end of this story. We know that Jesus is king. We know that he is coming back. We know that uh, we are yours and you are ours. And God, I just pray for um, that peace to uh, preside over our church family and God, that we would be able to be ministers of that peace to those uh, that are without hope. And God, I pray for um, uh, just our own hearts. Uh, I know that we are uh, tempted uh, to fear and we are uh, tempted to uh, worry, uh, be anxious about the future, God. But we know uh, your greatness uh, supersedes that, God. We know that you are above all things. And so I do pray for hearts of surrender. Um, I do pray for uh, protection for us, God. Would you protect us physically? Would you protect us uh, spiritually? Would you protect us uh, emotionally? Would you allow us to care well uh, for one another? And uh, God, to see what it is that you have in front of us that you're calling us uh, to right now personally and as a church family. So um, we are so grateful God, that, uh, that you are with us, that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, that we have these promises to cling to. And I pray that we would uh, cling well in this season. We love you, God. We trust you. We pray all these things in Christ's perfect name. Amen. Amen, church. Uh, just want to encourage you to be the church today. Seek the Lord. Uh, continue to pray. We love you, and we will be in touch soon.